Before we start, I just want to let our listeners know that this episode discusses animal neglect and euthanasia. So if that's not something you want to hear right now, feel free to come back to this episode when you're in a better place. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Megan Fury. This time, a woman helps rescue hundreds of animals from a really bad situation. And I picked up the phone and they said, when can you get here? And so the next day, I actually took a plane because it never occurred to me what was ahead for me over the next few weeks. Gail Woodsum loves llamas. I was a longtime backpacker who, in the late 1990s, decided that I was tired of the pain involved in backpacking, but nowhere near done with the desire to be out in the gorgeous backcountry. A friend of mine was kind of in the same boat after lugging 60 pounds uh, in her backpack around the world for many years, was looking for an alternative way to avoid that part of the challenge of backcountry backpacking. And she had done research and found out about llamas as being excellent pack animals. Her shopping for and getting her first llama was how I was introduced to llamas. My favorite thing always has been and still continues to be being able to get into the high country with animals that are happy to carry the weight for me so I could actually have real food with me and a real mattress and a chair and things that I was never able to bring when I was carrying it all myself sort of call them the green animal. They're extremely low impact. They're easy to train. They're wonderful companions. They alert you to the wildlife. They just add a whole lot of wonderful companionship as well as assistance. Gail had a small herd of llamas in Laramie, Wyoming, but she eventually moved them to a new home in North Park, Colorado, where she's been ever since. And she got very involved in the llama community. Became very involved and have a whole crew. It's almost like my social life. We call ourselves our llama friends. And we're referring to both the llamas and the people involved with them. My experience with llamas is that the vast majority of people fall in love with them for the same reasons that that I did. They love the companionship. You know, easy, gentle animals. They're very intelligent animals. You tend to bond with them if you work with them at all. Gail also showed her animals at llama shows around the country and was a judge for years. Llamas are adorable, but they're also really expensive to keep. There's a huge amount of work and investment and risk and downside. They require being shorn every year. I have to do toenails. They're, they're a large animal. People get them and they say, oh, this is really fun. And it's like, oh, but wait a minute. <laughs> I can't just leave and go on vacation. I now have livestock in my backyard. 
And llamas live into their 20s. This is a long-term commitment. People have them for a few years. They may even really enjoy them. And then after about five years, oh, the kids are outgrown this, or we're moving, or there's a divorce, or there's just some problem. And the first thing that goes are the llamas. And so then people just start calling rescue outfits and just saying, will you, will you take these llamas off my hands? We don't want them anymore. There are a number of animal sanctuaries in the U.S. that take in llamas, but that doesn't always mean they have the space or the resources to do so. Many, sadly, get auctioned off and sold to slaughter. However, in the late 90s, a large animal sanctuary in Montana stepped in to try and change that. The Montana Large Animal Sanctuary was developed in Narada, Montana. And they were actually creating a business on a beautiful 400-acre ranch where they advertised around the country that they would take in unwanted or abused animals in need of all kinds. So they were taking in camels. They were taking in pot-bellied pigs, emus. All of these exotic animals that tended to be where people would get them and then find out this is a lifetime commitment that actually it was a whim and I didn't want to stay involved with this. So they tapped into, yet these are people with heart. These are people who cared about these animals. And this sanctuary, the Montana Large Animal Sanctuary, would tell them, we'll take them in. We'll let them retire on our beautiful ranch. We'll have a wonderful home. And you don't have to worry about it. There were individual families who just, their circumstances had changed. They had to move. They were heartbroken. Couldn't take their llamas with them. They couldn't care for them anymore. Then they thought, this is a wonderful answer. After a few years, I started to hear from professional shearers and veterinarians who had gone in to supposedly provide services there, who had come out of there saying, it's not good there. They're actually not treating any illnesses. So we just started hearing these hints of this is not quite the paradise that was being sold to us all. And lo and behold, January of 2011, I was down at the National Western Llama Show. So there were a lot of us llama people there and the word went out that they had sent out an SOS call from the sanctuary saying that at the last minute, their single primary donor had withdrawn funding and they had only enough hay to last a week. Well over 1,200 animals so that was strange right there. So I was very distraught to hear this, but it was also, it was this odd thing. People didn't really want to talk about it because people have been seeing this sanctuary as their backup plan. So I went home and contacted them by email. I've been doing nonprofit activism work my entire adult life and just said, I'm available. I can come up and help. Well, I heard from them almost immediately. And I picked up the phone and they said, when can you get here? 
And so the next day, I actually took a plane because it never occurred to me what was ahead for me over the next few weeks. Gail arrived in Montana and stayed the night with a friend. The next morning, she made her way to the sanctuary. It was, it was just such a horrendous, depressing and terrifying nightmare that was awaiting me. There was another woman already at the sanctuary who worked at a cat shelter in Missoula, Montana. She, too, had heard the rumors and had come to help. So she was actually the first person on the ground who went in from the outside and saw what was going on at the sanctuary and met the person who was running the sanctuary. He was very charming. He was distraught. He loves these animals. And it was just a shock to them that their donor had pulled funding. And suddenly they didn't have any money at all. So initially she was just, oh, well, we'll come and we'll help you out. It took her a while to discover really how bad things were there because the first animal she saw were the llamas. And with a llama, you can't look at them and tell what their physical condition is because it's all covered with wool. You have to actually be able to get your hands on them. And she just saw a bunch of woolly animals wandering around 400 acres. She did, however, see a corral full of donkeys and noticed that they were jammed into a small corral and their hooves were so long that they were curling upwards. She said, um, this doesn't look right. What's going on with these donkeys' hooves? And the owner of the place said, well, because of the money, I've kind of gotten a little bit behind. And yet, in reality, the condition of their hooves takes years to get that back. So she was tipped off a little bit. She was actually the one who called in the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries to say, you need to be on the ground here to help us help this guy. So then it becomes very complicated. And it turns out that the Federation had been tipped off by someone else that there was something going wrong up there. And they had initially sent a few people in. And when they went in, and what they found is they found starving cows, crippled horses, dead animals all over the ranch. They said, we'll help you, but helping you is going to be, we're going to be removing animals. You clearly are unable to take care of 1,200 animals that are on this place, and they're dying at a rapid rate. And they're in great grave need of medical attention. And so we're going to need you to sign off so that we can get them to the places where they can take care of them. At that point in time, the owner blew up. The charming man disappeared, and a very angry man who is now feeling threatened that his livelihood, his focus in the world, was going to be taken away from him. That was the beginning of one of the largest animal rescue efforts in U.S. history. The Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries is a nonprofit that certifies animal sanctuaries and rescue centers. They say the Montana Large Animal Sanctuary never went through the certification process or applied for it. 
The owner has denied the allegations that the animals were mistreated and not cared for. He claims a lack of funding from the sanctuary's one and only donor, plus his wife being ill, were to blame for things deteriorating. The Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries coordinated the effort and contacted rescue organizations across the U.S. Many responded immediately and agreed to take in as many as they could. The animals would be going as far as Texas, California, and New York, just to name a few. Gail says the crew of volunteers on site in Montana was small. Most were from well-known animal welfare organizations, but it was only about 15 people for 1,200 animals. Gail says it was just one more thing that made this rescue difficult. Narada, Montana was very far away from any place, and it was January, and it was icy and snowy and horribly cold and miserable, and there was no shelter for the animals. So this is a place that had an indoor swimming pool, a guest, a beautiful log home, a beautiful log guest house, and the animals had nothing, including food. It was just an awful situation. The volunteers' first job was to assess all the animals. They had to see if they were healthy enough to be transported. There were clearly a number of animals that were not going to last much longer. There was a point at which a lot of these animals would go down. And once an animal goes down, it was really clear that most of them were not going to get up again. And we did have to make decisions about, okay, maybe it's time to, to help them move along. There were a number still being euthanized, which mostly had to be done by gunshots. Hundreds of animals were euthanized. Gail says so many were suffering horribly, and it was the most humane thing to do. Later, they were able to bring a veterinarian in to administer chemical euthanasia, so no one had to shoot any more animals, which was only slightly better for the volunteers. These are sentient beings. Anyone who's spent any time with animals know that. Know how they help each other out, how they mourn when one of their herd mates dies. You can just see it. They're connected in a way. They're aware of what's going on. And that was traumatic and difficult for the people who were doing that. Some, they, they lasted like two or three days and were so horrified by what they found. Open pits of dead animals, just horrific. It was really hard on them. It was just so heartbreaking and so difficult. Like we're war buddies. And it was. It was this intense connection that we had to make. We're very different people with very different perspectives, and yet 
we were there on this single mission and we had the same desire to do right by each animal. Gail and the volunteers were desperately trying to put the word out about what was going on on social media. They needed help and donations to keep the rescue operation going. But we also got torn to shreds by the same people we thought we were trying to serve. We would get notices and calls and letters from people saying, just who the hell do you think you are? All of these animals should be euthanized. You're just adding to the cruelty. And then we had the other side. You're putting some of these animals down. How can you do that? You're not God. You should be doing everything you can to save every animal there, no matter what. People were trying to help, but they weren't there. They had no idea what it was actually like and what we were actually up against and the kinds of decisions we had to make every couple of hours. That was why we needed each other and we needed the animals. It took a toll on everyone's mental health. The volunteers leaned on each other for moral support. Some took up yoga and meditation, and Gail says they turned off the news. But ultimately, they had to keep working. The volunteers worked with the animals they knew best. Given her background, Gail immediately took over the llama operation. She gathered a group of her own volunteers and people she knew, and they spent the next few weeks saving as many as they could. We got down to between six and 800 llamas now all herded together in maybe a five-acre area with some corrals and some sheds. None of them had been designed to hold animals. They had been designed to hold equipment. Protect the equipment at all costs. First thing we did is said, let's go in and look for the ones that are not going to survive. They're not going to survive in a crowded herd having to fight for food. Maybe are on their last legs or just maybe not going to make it. Basically, we're looking for our hospice crew. And we were able to take one of the large equipment sheds and turn it into a hospice barn with special care where we could really attend to real special needs. And the way we did that, we had marker paint, <laughs> non-toxic marker paint, and we marked the animals that needed to be moved to the hospice area with blue paint. And so those became the llamas we called the blues. And so that's how I became very attached to the blues. It was an expensive operation. They needed to feed, care for, medicate, and arrange transport for hundreds of large animals. A lot of the rescuers on site, as well as the sanctuaries across the country receiving the animals, paid for the expenses out of pocket which was thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, of dollars. Gail and some of the other volunteers started sleeping in the barn. They worked tirelessly, nursing the llamas and other animals back to health. Three or four of us out there around the clock, just feeding, doing medication. There were a lot of eye infections and ear infections. It was that kind of thing that we were dealing with along with the starvation. Freezing out, there was snow on the ground. 
there was ice on the ground. Then the animals came in, which kind of chopped up the ice and stirred up mud. Now we had freezing mud on top of solid ice on the ground. People were falling, animals were falling. It was miserable. Gail says the owner had moved off the property and was living with a friend nearby. One night, Gail was sleeping in the barn with the llamas and a volunteer named Sean when she heard something outside. All of a sudden, I started hearing this screaming coming from a human being. And so Sean and I kind of got up and stepped out of the barn and were looking off into the dark. And then we could see that it was the owner of this property. Gail was scared. She knew the owner had firearms on the property. Standing there and I'm thinking, where are the guns? And where is he going to use them? And he hates us because he thinks we're ruining his life. It was pretty scary. He had apparently been running around screaming at everyone and had been waving a gun and threatening things. The owner eventually left without incident. The next morning, Gail went into the main operations building and ran into another volunteer named Angie. Angie's sitting there. She's this young, lovely woman. She's working away on her computer. And on the footstool in front of her, there's just this pistol. And she was terrified because she was alone in the, in the room at that time. She says, I just want it sitting there. So in case he comes in here, he sees that I'm ready. Thankfully, <laughs> she never had to use it. Gail says, thankfully, the owner never came back after that night, which was good because they had a lot of work to do. We were feeding literally tons of hay and just trying to do it in big crops. We didn't have the ability right off the bat to be able to put everyone in a little corral and feed them separately. So we were just doing our best. In that process, you could start to see the herd mentality and the society that llamas create for themselves. It's really quite unique. But there was also this way in which different animals would pair up. They would have like a buddy or a friend. And the first pair that I met like that, they had named them Franny and Frida. And they looked completely different. One is a light wool with a long neck and floppy ears, and that's Franny. And then Frida was this short, grayish, just kind of this homely little thing, and they were absolutely inseparable. And so we knew then and there that, okay, we have to find an adoptive family specifically for this pair. You could just tell that's how they were surviving, and we were able to place them as a pair. We'll get a long trip all the way to the sanctuary to get those two. Franny and Frida's happy ending was a big win. In the midst of all the sadness, Gail started to see glimmers of hope. 
sanctuaries were reaching out and willing to take in as many animals as they could. Over the course of six weeks, truckloads of animals were sent out across the country. It was our first chance to see, okay, it's not just going to be horror and trauma. There's this wonderful thing that's happening, and there are these amazing people on the other side of the country waiting to receive these animals. We started to get donations and adoption applications and wonderful things like that. It was those kinds of things that just kept us all going. Um, and it was, it was a long time. There was a lot of trauma after this. Um, as I said, we were not really prepared for how to do this kind of thing for llamas. Hadn't been done before. It's a lot to learn how to deal with, to learn how to live with your decisions that are sometimes don't work right, that there are accidents, there are things that happen, or you make the wrong decision and, um, and it doesn't go well for the animal, even though you're trying to do what's best. It's just not, it's just not possible for everything to be like a Disney movie. Incredibly, by the end of six weeks, almost every animal still alive had been transported, about 800. And almost 600 of those were llamas. The rescue operation was exhausting. The volunteers were physically and emotionally drained, and many were traumatized by what they saw. Hundreds of animals had died, but hundreds had also been saved. It's been over a decade, and Gail says she really tries to focus on the success stories, but the experience changed her. I started drawing lines on the kind of rescue that I would do. People who no longer want their animals, I don't consider that a rescue process. I consider that an abandonment process. So I limit the kind of rescues I'll be involved with. You know, the PSA version of this <laughs> is know what you're doing. And it's so easy for people who truly love animals to suddenly find themselves with, oh, now I have 80 llamas and they're living on 10 acres. It, it just happens without people realizing it. And they think it's coming from their heart, but they don't have the right information and they don't have the right mentors when they first get their animals. People just need to be responsible. After weeks of hard work, the end was in sight. The volunteers were drained, but all they had left were the blues, the llamas that had gone into Gail's makeshift hospice area. I could feel myself starting to think, well, am I going to take a few llamas home with me? I was calculating how much space do I have and capacity do I have at my place to take some additional rescue animals. So I, right then and there, told myself, if any animals are coming back with me, it's going to be the ones that no one else wants. I called a friend to go get my truck, bring it back to my ranch, and hook up my big trailer and bring it to Montana because I think I'm coming home with some llamas. The blues were going to come home with me. 
As Gail and the volunteers were getting ready to load the blues into her trailer, they saw one last llama they had to deal with. One llama that no one could catch. He could jump seven foot at a standstill. So anytime anyone got near him, he would just pop over a fence and we were starting to panic. People were saying, well, you're just gonna have to leave him. I'm like, I can't leave one animal here. All the other animals were gone. The emus were gone. The camels were gone. There was nothing left except this one leaping llama. So he's getting more and more worked up now because he's out there about half a dozen volunteers who are trying to catch him. And I was afraid he was going to jump a fence and land in the road, you know, and then we'd lose him forever. I said, you know what, I, I just have to think this through. Gail stepped away for a few minutes to take care of some last minute things. Then she made her way back to her trailer to check on the llama. And I said, well, well, where is that last llama? And he says, in your trailer. And I said, what? So he said, I opened the big door of the back of the trailer, opened it wide, and just stepped back. And this little llama, he was probably about 18 months old, looked around, and he's like, there's no animals anywhere here. And that's a trailer full of animals that are lying down and chewing their cub. And he just walked over and jumped in with them. And that's how he became part of the blues. And that's the crew that came home with me. Our storyteller today was Gail Woodsum. Gail still lives in Colorado with her herd of llamas and is still very involved in the community. That last llama is named Buckaroo, and he and three of the blues are still happily roaming Gail's property. Gail says Buckaroo is a real character and has thrived since his rescue. Gail told me the owner of the sanctuary was never prosecuted, and she doesn't really know what happened to him. The volunteers and rescue centers were hoping to be reimbursed after the sanctuary dissolved for all the money they spent during the rescue operation. Gail says, as far as she knows, nobody has seen a dime. But she still wants to get this story out there and preach responsible animal ownership. For photos from this episode, follow us on social media. We're at Human Nature Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. On X, formerly Twitter, we're at Human Nature Pod. And right now, we're looking for stories to feature in our next season. So if you have one or know someone who does, let us know. Our DMs are always open, or you can head to our website, humannaturepodcast.org, and contact us there. I'm Megan Fury. This episode was produced by me, with help from Melody Edwards and Stephen Carroll. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. 
Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.